would you answer someone who says, I'm really interested by church, but I'll never be a Christian because the people in church put me off by not acting like I'd expect Christians to do. Mm. Yes. Um, thank you very much for that question. <laughs> um, well, uh, to a just very quick comment. Um, the first is I think a lot of um, non-Christians, maybe interested non-Christians, do think like this. They, they will often criticize us. They think the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. Um, there will often be a perception, perhaps uh, with some grounding, uh, for thinking that Christians aren't the people that they're uh, cracked up to be. So I think in the conversations I, I would have with, with non-Christians who might think that, I would have a couple of things to say. The first is, what's your view of the church? How do you see Christians? How do you see the church? Because sometimes they think it's an institution. It's a formal, you know, everyone has to be on their best behavior. And I prefer to describe the church more like a hospital. In other words, um, if you've got a broken arm then you go to hospital and you don't complain that the hospital is full of people who've got broken arms or broken legs. Well, that's what the hospital's for. It's made up of people who need help. And it's the same with the church, that we, we uh, uh, ourselves are there. We're members of God's family because we know our need of God, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Um, in fact, I think it was Martin Luther who said that um, evangelism is telling one beggar where uh, is, telling, is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So we want to help people, I think, to understand that the church is not everyone on their best behavior, wearing their best clothes, going through all kinds of formal religious rituals. No, it's, it's a rescue. It's a hospital. It's a, a place where, where people uh, meet the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, are, are themselves transformed. Um, second thing just to mention is that I think... Um, we should not be afraid to invite people still to come. I, I, I don't know which of the sessions on Sunday I mentioned. Uh, um, no, it was on the Saturday evening I mentioned a, a Buddhist friend who I invited to our church. And sometimes it's when they're actually amongst people and they see the warmth and the support and the joy and the frailties and the difficulties in a congregation, um, they begin to feel a little more at home. Um, in the, when I was a young People would believe, and then they would belong. Um, some missiologists say these days it's maybe slightly the other way around, that people need to feel some sense of community, some sense of belonging, and then they begin to believe. And so helping people into our fellowship, making them feel at home, is critically important to dispel some of those images. The final thing to say, of course, is what we all thought when the question was asked, and that is we have work to do, don't we? If our reputation is uh, such as the questioner propose, then we really must live the life. Um, remember Peter said, live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God in the day he comes. So we have to live out uh, the life. Um, as we said, I think yesterday from Acts, uh, do you remember the early Christian community, Acts 2? Um, they really were a wonderful fellowship. They sold their possessions if people had need. They met together daily, and it says they found favor with everybody. In other words, they were an attractive Christian group. Um, people were drawn to this fellowship, and uh, Luke uh, uh, ends that chapter by saying, and day by day the Lord added to 
their, uh, their fellowship. So we should be that kind of attractive Christian community. We should live such good lives that people are drawn to Jesus. That's a big call, isn't it? But that's uh, what we have to overcome for someone who might think like that. That's it. Oh, lovely. Okay, third question, one that ties in really with another one. Um, first question is this. In the light of 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul as a humble servant, are we raising him up onto a pedestal against his desire by continually saying, Paul says this, or Paul writes that, instead of simply the word of God says? Um, so that's A, part A of this, this question. The, the, the other question, similar, says... Paul spoke of himself as being the chief of sinners. Is that a good attitude for Christians to have? Or should, should we be more positive about being victorious in Christ? Mm. Well, um, I mustn't start preaching, so a really quick answer. Um, with regard to the, the first part of the question, uh, it came from 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, which we looked at on Saturday evening. Paul said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And uh, I stressed at that point that serving others was part of our responsibility, one of our priorities. It certainly was Paul's. He describes himself, actually, the word is slave. So um, are we right to keep re- referring to Paul and Paul and Paul said this or Peter said that? Well, of course, first of all, we exalt no one uh, other than the Lord Jesus um, we don't exalt, we honor Mary, but we don't exalt her. We honor Paul or the gospel writers, but we don't exalt them above Jesus. Um, they are all the Lord's servants. And Paul, of all people, wanted to underline that. Uh, if you want to see how he describes himself, it's worth looking at 2 Corinthians because the whole letter, he's very personal in, in showing that he's not trying to be the big leader that the false teachers in uh, and Corinthians wanted him to be. Um, so you, we are right that Paul is the servant. Um, he is one of us. Um, he's frail, but uh, uh, the Lord used him in remarkable ways. Um, the second question um, actually quotes Paul, where he says, I'm the chief of sinners. That's how he saw himself. So in terms of his identity, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. This is 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. So he, didn't, uh, he wasn't on an ego trip. Uh, he didn't want to exalt himself, and neither do we want to do that. However, do you remember what God said, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2? And that is, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And by that, he means on the teaching which the prophets and the apostles have given. So Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We're all held together by Jesus. But the foundation has been the teaching which the prophets and the apostles have given to us. And therefore, um, there's a right sense in which they have authority. As we'll see in just a minute when we get into Nehemiah 8, um, all Bible books have two authors. Um, There is the human author, So we're going to look at Nehemiah's memoirs in just a minute. But there is supervising all of those different authors, God himself, 
who inspires by the Holy Spirit. And so the words that we read now from Nehemiah are, of course, the words which God has spoken to us through Nehemiah. The words which we uh, read in Ephesians or 2 Corinthians from Paul are the words which God has inspired him to speak. He even said that to the Thessalonians, and I'll quote that in the next few minutes, that what he said actually was not the words of men, but as it actually is, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. So when we say Paul said, it's shorthand for saying, well, this is what God has said. When I say Nehemiah wrote, it's saying, this is what God is saying. Um, So I absolutely understand the spirit of the question. Uh, We shouldn't elevate these people inappropriately, but they are God's chosen people as prophets and uh, apostles, the foundation, uh, their teaching is the foundation for the church, and uh, we remember the dual authorship of the Bible. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Pretty comprehensive. Thank Let's you. Start with the questions. Sorry. There is an, uh, another oh. one. We'll we'll do one more. Oh, okay. It's a little bit more personal. Right. Um, but I think helpful as well. It says, "How do you pray for people in your quiet time? Do you have a prayer list or a prayer plan?" for each day, and what do you pray for people? Mm. Um, Well, that's a good question. Um, And um, Dave very kindly allowed me to preach in his church on Sunday morning, and we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2, under priorities for worship. And um, for me, um, that's become quite an important model. When I do have lists, I I have lists of lists, actually. I write so many lists. Um, And and, uh, on my lists, my prayer lists, um, I've tried to follow what Paul did in 1 Timothy 2. The reason why we chose it in this priorities list is uh, he said, first of all, you should pray for, does anyone remember what you should pray for? First of all, in the local church, Rulers and kings, yes. So he starts, you, my lists usually were, you know, there's, there's Margaret and me and there's my family and then there's, there's our church and then there's uh, uh, our city and then out it goes in concentric circles. But Paul in 1 Timothy 2 reverses it, or at least, rather he starts on the outer circle first. He starts with praying for all, uh, for, the, for the world, for rulers uh, so that we could live at peace, so the gospel can advance. Uh, and, and then gradually uh, um, our prayers come in to pray for the, our, our personal needs. So I've tried to do that, to try to keep in my mind the needs to pray for God's people globally, to pray for governments and kings, for the gospel to advance, um, to pray uh, day by day uh, for, for the issues. Um, I hope, well, we did, they've led us in prayer on Sunday, immediately for the Indonesian believers following the bombings there on Sunday morning. Um, Our hearts should be big, our prayers should be big as we look at the needs of God's people all around the world and not just the personal concerns, although those obviously are close to our hearts. So um, yeah, that's what I try to do. I don't pretend to be a great model. Um, There's so much more I need to learn about how to pray. But I I keep good lists. I use Operation World. Do some of you use Operation World? Hope you do. Um, you can get that from 10 of those, I'm sure. Um, that goes through every country of the world what to pray for. Um, some of you have the prayer app from Operation World. It's now available, which uh, will trigger every day something to pray for. I'm on several email uh, bulletins uh, for Albania or for North Korea, and I get an email in my uh, box 
every day on pray, something to pray for in some of these countries. So there are lots of tools now that will help us every day to pray for God's work worldwide, as well as the prayer for our own needs. So I'm sure that's... There are many others who ought to be on the platform answering that question, I think, and not just me, but thanks for the good questions. Well, thank you for the good questions, and thank you for the good answers. Okay. <laughs> much better job than I could do. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Um, we're going to sing one more song before um, Jonathan comes to teach, and just as Frank and Cheryl are, are setting up, I'm going to read from the um, reading that Jonathan's going to be teaching from tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Matithia, Shemna, Aniah, Uriah, Hikiah, and Messiah. And on his left, Padiah, Mishael, Milkajah, I can see why he got me to read this one, yes. Hashem, that one, <laughs> Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Shereba, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Messiah, Keltiah, Azurai, Jozabad, Hanan, and Pelahai, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there they read from the book of the law of God making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read then Nehemiah the governor Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all this day is holy to the Lord your God do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law Nehemiah said go Enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Praise God. As we uh, sing this next hymn, we're going to take the, the offering, and then Jonathan's going to come and teach.
this is my last opportunity uh, to speak, and I'd like especially to add my thanks to the team that Dave mentioned uh, who've done such a good job in running the Bradford Keswick. I've been very grateful uh, to the good secretarial support from Kevin, uh, just back here, who's uh, looked after me very well, and uh, to others. And I usually, at this point, like to thank the technical crew on sound and vision. Um, they have the power to sabotage my best efforts, and um, they've done a great job, so I'm most grateful. <laughs> um, and you'll see on the screen uh, that our final priority, first things first, in Christian growth. And the reason for all of these priorities, which we've looked at, um, is that they are so fundamental to the way we should live as individuals and as churches. Um, there is a, a sort of management guru, business guru, a man called Peter Drucker. Some of you might have come across him. And he once said... Um, that after a certain period of time, organizations begin to do things right rather than do the right things. Uh, what he meant by that is usually about 50 years, he said, when an organization gets like that. And it happens to churches and Christian organizations and maybe even to individuals that you begin with a strong sense of what really matters. You do things that are right. You have a clear understanding of your priorities. But over the years, uh, you just carry on in the routines and you concentrate on doing things right rather than those core uh, principles doing the right things. So it's always good uh, to think of first things first, what really matters in our lives and as our churches and in, uh, in Christian service. And we come this evening to Christian growth and particularly, of course, the power and relevance of God's word in this fantastic story from Nehemiah chapter 8. I wonder if some of you remember um, a New Testament paraphrase written by, the, by a man called J.B. Phillips. Do you remember that? Um, I still have it at home. Uh, it was a lovely paraphrase. And um, when he wrote it, he said that working on the original languages was rather like working on the mains electricity of a house while the electricity was still switched on he said. In other words, the book was live. It was energizing. It was active. It was like working uh, with a, a live wire. In fact, I'm going to quote several times this evening uh, Martin Luther. This is what he said. The Bible is alive. It has hands and grabs hold of me. It has feet and runs after me. He understood the dynamic of God's word. And um, I hardly need to put them on the screen, but here are some of the dynamic images which we, uh, we discover in Scripture as it describes itself. Uh, Jeremiah, do you remember, described God's word like a fire that was in his bones. He couldn't hold it in. Or like a hammer that breaks rocks. He knew his message of judgment. They're dynamic images for what God's word does. Or Paul, um, of course, described the word as the sword of the spirit. It's repeated twice. It's, uh, it's in uh, Hebrews as well. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Another dynamic image for the word is a, a beautiful one that Jesus gives us, which is the seed. Do you remember in his parable in uh, uh, Mark, or in fact in all of the Gospels, I think, in the synoptics, he talks about the seed, which is small, it's quiet, it's hidden, but it produces a wonderful harvest. 
Um, these are great dynamic images that say that uh, God's word is not simply propositions. There is about God's word something which achieves its purpose, which is dynamic. Maybe even the best, as I put at the end, is, of course, the lovely story of the, the disciples walking home to Emmaus after the dramatic events in Jerusalem when Jesus had died. You remember that lovely story? And uh, Jesus actually joins them on that journey to Emmaus. But the significant thing is he doesn't introduce himself. How does he introduce himself? By turning to the scriptures, to the Old Testament. And uh, Luke 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And it's no wonder at the end of that encounter, do you remember they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And that story, I think, is recorded by Luke to demonstrate that at that point, Jesus doesn't immediately introduce himself, but they discover Jesus through the scriptures. And that is exactly our situation as well. It's through God's word that we encounter the living Christ. Now, this is the reason for the Bradford Keswick. This is the reason for our churches, why we open God's word. It's the reason why we, we read God's word day by day, because we believe it has the same dynamic impact today as it did in the days when it was spoken or written. It introduces us to Jesus himself, our growth as believers, is dependent upon our understanding and our experience of the power of this word. Here's another Luther illustration which I really like. He said that the Bible is the cradle in which you find the baby. Have you heard that illustration? Um, what he means is that, that the Bible uh, itself isn't just there to give us information, but as we come to the scriptures, we discover the baby. We discover Jesus himself. Um, in, our, in our church, a couple have just given birth to twins. And um, so they bring, bring the twins in, in a double buggy, you know, these really smart double buggies. They brought them into church. And it would be very, very strange if that happened in your church if you looked and you admired the buggy. You said, oh, look, <laughs> frictionless wheels, lovely upholstery, you know, fantastic buggy. No, you wouldn't. Every, all eyes are on the babies. So that's the point about coming to Scripture. It's not so that we just accumulate more knowledge or admire the Scriptures, although, of course, they are to be admired as literature, as even uh, Richard Dawkins says. But it's the real purpose of Scripture is to lead us to the encounter with Jesus himself. Um, that's well-known phrase, do you remember, in 2 Timothy 3, you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Well, let's now turn to the story after that little introduction. It's a dynamic word, and this story in Nehemiah 8 explains some of the dynamics going on, and I hope uh, in just three simple points uh, to help us understand why it matters. The first thing about the story is what I've called the foundation of God's word. And this section that we have read is right at the center of Nehemiah's memoirs. The building of the wall is already over. We often think that the story of Nehemiah is about building the wall. It's not, actually. It's a story about building God's people. They'd been away in exile, 
And now they'd come back home to Jerusalem and they needed now to restore their national life, to begin to understand how they should live as God intended them to live. And so they call for the book. Here in Nehemiah 8, they call for the book of the law of Moses. And there are three things to notice, or at least two I think I'll mention. One is its centrality. Uh, This seventh month, you'll notice at the beginning, uh, chapter 8 and verse 1, was a month of great religious festivity. And verse 1 begins, All the people assembled before the water gate, they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So you'll notice it was a grassroots desire to hear God's word. It was the people who called for the word to be read. And the law commanded the attention of everyone. Verse 3, all the people listened attentively. This was because the word of God was really the foundation articles. Now that they were back home, now that they were thinking about how they should live as God's people, the word of God was the new constitution that would shape how they would live as families, how they would carry out their economic activity. The word of God mattered. It was central. Then the other thing to notice is its authority. And I hinted at this in one of the questions just a moment ago. Look again at verse 1. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. This is one of many instances of what we call the dual authorship of Scripture. I mentioned it a moment ago. You'll notice on several occasions it says it's the law of Moses. Moses was the writer, the author, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. In other words, this law which Moses recorded was teaching from God himself. It was authoritative because it was God's word. And if you don't have that, then all you're doing is venerating a book. If you think it's just wonderful literature only, all you're doing is venerating that book. But it is the word of God, and it's a vital understanding. I also quoted this verse Coming up on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Um, you look how, how Paul describes the way these Thessalonian believers received the word of God. We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. It's a fantastic verse about why the Bible matters. It says it's authoritative. Paul says this is the word of God. When he said it, it was really uh, emphatic. You could underline the words of God. It's really important to see, Paul says, it's not the words of men. It's authoritative because it comes from God, even though he was speaking that message. And secondly, it's powerful. Look at the final words on the screen, which this word is at work in you who believe. So God's word, even now as we read it and take it in, like the Thessalonian believers, is at work transforming us. It's at work in those, it goes on working in those who go on believing. That's why this is a powerful, authoritative word. So here in Nehemiah 8, it's central and it's authoritative. It's not simply cold propositions. It's a dynamic word 
that by the Holy Spirit will transform us. It is at work in those who believe. And there is a third thing I thought there might be, and here it is, it's accessibility. I love the story because um, as you read it, you see it's really clear about this point. If God's word was going to be the foundation for their families and for their personal lives and for their uh, uh, business, then it had to be clear to everyone. And for one thing, for everyone was present. That's repeated several times. All the people assembled as one man, verse 1. Ezra read before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So all the kids were there, all the young people. It's repeated in verse 3. Verse 5, all the people could see him. And the fact that this, where was this uh, read? Was it in the temple? Did they read the Bible in the temple? No, they read it downtown. They read it in the city center, in the business district, by the water gate. In other words, I think Ezra, who was the scribe working with Nehemiah, he wanted to do everything he could to avoid the impression that the law of Moses, God's word, was just for the religious people, you know, the religious professionals down in the temple. No, he read it in the city square, Everyone was present. Everyone could see him. He had this fantastic pulpit built, as, you, as we read. So they've read the passage, you know, a high wooden tower. Make sure everyone can hit, see. And not only that, they wanted to make sure everyone understood. Do you notice the stress on understanding that's all the way through the story? The emphasis on making it clear, verse 8, giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And the reason for their response, which we're going to finish with in just a minute, verse 12, was because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Um, I think Dave did a great job reading that list of uh, Levites, don't you you think? And um, I think partly the reason why they're there, uh, verses 7 and 8, is that they were involved probably with translation, as far as we can tell. It may have been Aramaic and other dialects. They were working with a huge crowd of people. And so they were out there in the crowd, either helping people to understand by translation, or perhaps they were running small group discussions, like little Bible study groups, to make sure everyone understood what the text meant. So what comes across clearly is the desire to make this word accessible to everybody. And clear Bible teaching that's accessible to all or personal reading or group discussion, all of these ways are vital in our world today. Um, Not long ago, I I visited some church planters in uh, northern India. There's a fantastic church planting movement in Uttar Pradesh. And uh, there are about a 1,000 young men and women now who are planting churches across the state. And for one week, every month, they all come together And they study and learn from one Bible book. Uh, When I was there, we were doing the book of Acts. Previous month, they'd done Deuteronomy. And uh, one week, every month, they all met under one huge tent with big uh, vats of food, which we all enjoyed together. And we worked on one Bible book. It was quite an investment of time and actually a fair bit of money as they traveled and they had to be there. So I said to the leaders, why why are you doing it? Why such a big investment? One week every month. And they said, well, this is an obvious reason why we have to do this. Most of these young people who are church planting come from a Hindu background. So before they met Christ, they had a Hindu worldview. 
So now they've met Jesus Christ and they're helping now to plant churches. It's essential they have a biblical worldview. They understand the truth of the gospel. They understand the big story of the scriptures. And so month by month, one Bible book, uh, they went through to understand and then to teach it in the churches which they were planting. And I couldn't help thinking, that's exactly what we need in Britain. That's exactly what we need in Europe. We are effectively post-Christian, and so many people don't know the truth of Scripture. Um, It's also very, very possible in our churches that the Bible is nudged nudged aside, or at least marginalized. Um, Is it central in our churches, as it is here in Nehemiah chapter 8? If it is, then of course we're going to encounter Jesus, is the one whom we come to meet. Um, But very often there's a great danger that the Bible, the scriptures, uh, are are pushed aside. You remember the story in Acts 6, the apostles, first things first, they realized that what was happening in the church, particular needs which they needed to address, were distracting them from the ministry of the word and prayer. So they reorganized life so that they really could be true to those priorities. And I do think that the life and the health and the mission of our churches depends on this, the foundation of God's word. Um, A small break while I put up some of the great resources which are available to you from 10 of those. And here they go. So we really should get children into books about the Bible. This is a fantastic uh, beginner's Bible. My children, uh, my my grandchildren uh, now uh, are enjoying this. Um, The Jesus Storybook Bible. Has anyone seen this? Have you got them for your kids, your grandchildren? Uh, The Big Picture Story Bible. What we're doing is making the Bible accessible to all, all who can understand. For fives to sevens, um, I really like some of the uh, table talk. This encourages families to discuss the Bible together. Um, Eights to twelves, the Action Bible. Um, All kinds of other resources. Um, Slugs and bugs, have you come across them? Um, That's singing the Bible, singing Bible verses. Um, Our kids used to sing these all the time. Not this version because our our kids are older, but uh, similar. Um, Sorry, Um, singing Bible verses in the car. Um, Play through the Bible. These are activities. Bake through the Bible. It's one of my favorites with one of my granddaughters, which is uh, Bible stories where you work with children and you're baking at the same time. So you're getting uh, ideas uh, about the scripture story um, in in all kinds of imaginative and interesting ways. Um, We've mentioned some of these, uh, Food for the Journey, uh, which uh, Keswick Resources are producing. Uh, Jonathan, uh, um, uh, son of Roger, has has made these available at really, really rock-bottom prices. They're daily devotionals, and Roger's also got some on the the great uh, tables before you go out, just a pound each, I think, some of them, just daily readings. So um, we should be not only getting these, but passing them out in our church, making sure everyone uses them. I had this one on 2 Timothy. I was at a church in Warrington the other day, and someone came up to me and said, uh, we're using these daily readings that we're teaching 2 Timothy in the church for Sundays. And so everybody in the church is getting one of these. So everybody has a daily reading from 2 Timothy, whilst it's also being taught. 
Isn't that a good idea? Um, so there are lots of things we should do. If you're a bit more serious, for the love of God is, a, is Don Carson's daily readings built around uh, four chapters a day, Murray Machane's reading of scripture. Um, and the last thing I wanted to mention was this fantastic audio. Uh, I think 10 of those got these. Um, they're MP3s or I think maybe also CDs. You can hear David Suchet read the whole Bible. How many people drive a car? Quite a lot of us. Uh, why don't we listen to scripture on our journeys? In fact, um, it's available also in the children's format. And Sophie, who's my little uh, five-year-old daughter, she falls asleep every night. Uh, did I say grandson? Oh, granddaughter. Yeah, granddaughter. Um, yeah, she falls asleep every night listening to a little MP3 player with David Suchet reading children's Bible stories. What a lovely way to go to sleep. She loves his voice. He's great way of telling the story and it's God's powerful word okay let me move on second thing the hunger of God's people and again I just want to point out from the simple bullet points from the story the first thing to notice is of course their expectancy I hope you were you when you read it you were impressed they were eager to hear the word as I said verse one they were the ones who called Ezra out to uh, read the book in fact, ages ago, I read a book by Jim Packer about uh, the story of Nehemiah, and um, he made a very interesting observation. He suggested it was rather like a crowd at a rock concert. I don't know what Jim Packer knows about rock concerts, but this is what he said. An impatient audience picking up the chant, we want Ezra. We want Ezra, saying it louder and louder, over and over, and you get some idea of the feelings being expressed in Nehemiah 8. You see, they were keen to hear God's word. They called on Ezra, bring out the word. And the same sense of eagerness and expectancy is there, verse 3. All the people listened attentively. Verse 5, all the people stood up when the book was opened. Uh, verse 13, we didn't get that far. Everyone gathered to give attention to the word of the Lord. It's a very simple point, but it reminds us that uh, there is very little to be gained from reading the Bible without faith and expectancy. In fact, Jesus' own ministry was frustrated. Do you remember? He was in the synagogue. And there was no expectancy on the part of his hearers. So even Jesus' ministry was met with cynicism and incredulity. No expectant faith. That's the soil in which God's word will produce fruit. We need that kind of expectancy. I don't know how, how you are on a Sunday morning. It's a chase, you know, to get to church. You've got to get the kids in the car and you've got to get dinner in the oven and you're rushing. What kind of expectancy do we have as we come to hear the word of the Lord? Well, here it was remarkable. And that's the way to receive from God. The second was their commitment. And you'll notice uh, this was another sign of their spiritual seriousness. They were ready to put up with all kinds of inconvenience in order to hear the word. Uh, it says in verse 9, they stood from daybreak till noon. That's probably about five hours standing without a coffee break in sight. And they were listening to God's word. Now, I think this, this is all to do with the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Um, there are many things we need to do, as I've already implied, to make God's word accessible, to make it understandable. 
But more than anything else, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to reverse the tide. Um, Among some Christians, uh, I think I may have quoted it on Saturday night, there is a very serious loss of commitment to the Bible. Uh, only seven, well, some 70% of people who call themselves Christians now read the Bible only at a church service, never outside. Um, it's serious. Um, that's why we're talking about it tonight, as first things first. But there are also signs of some hunger for God's word, and it's especially true amongst younger people. I'm, I'm personally very, very optimistic in our culture, in the, in the Western world, and here in Britain. In fact, a recent survey about uh, people's attitude to the Bible, it did have some negative figures, such as I quoted on Saturday night. But there were also, um, they made reference to a 15-year-old boy who was interviewed, and they asked the question, what would your church lose if it lost the sermon? And the uh, 15-year-old boy said, the congregation. That's what you'd lose. And it was a wonderful answer. If, if we give up on the preaching and teaching and the listening and the engaging and the discussing and the home group uh, uh, gossiping of, of God's word, we, we are doomed. Um, the survey indicated that young people are definitely anxious to hear God's word. They want it applied, they want it relevant, but they want it they want to know how God's word is going to impact the way they've got to live, the challenges they've got to face. I think it's a very hopeful moment for the rising generation and we must uh, do all we can to respond to that. And the third thing about uh, the hunger was their reverence. Verse 6 Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So again, I think there's something to be learned from the attitude of the Watergate congregation in Jerusalem that day. You'll notice a longing to hear God speak. Verse 6, they lifted up their hands. Uh, With reverence, they bowed their faces to the ground. Uh, We may not do those things, but they are prerequisites in terms of our attitude for truly understanding God's word and coming into God's presence. In fact, I think the, the verse, these verses are very important, again, to underline that we're not venerating the book as such. Sometimes evangelicals are accused of just being interested in the book, worshipping the book. We're not. That's the reason why I mentioned right at the beginning, what is the purpose of the book? It's to lead us into God's presence. That's exactly what was happening here in Nehemiah 8. Not worshipping the law of Moses, but coming into God's presence, bowing down before him, longing that he should speak. Well, that leads to the final thing I want to mention as we close, and that is the impact of God's word. Because, as I've hinted, the Bible is not just given to us to inform or to instruct, although it does do that, but it's given to us to transform to produce change. Uh, Paul said this to the Romans, thanks be to God that you've become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And we should expect this. I've already quoted 1 Thessalonians 2, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. There were three things that happened. 
The first was celebration. Actually, the first response, as you see in verse 9, they all began to weep. But uh, Ezra and Nehemiah very quickly encouraged them to realize that the word of God was full of promises for their blessing, that they'd come back home. God's desire was to bless them. And so this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn, do not weep. Uh, Go off and party. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the first response was to respond joyfully at everything that God had done for them. They'd now understood the words that God had uh, spoken to them. And they went off with great joy because of what they had heard. Actually, after all those hours of standing, it must have been added enthusiasm going off to eat and drink and remember all the good things that God has done for them. They now understood the words. The joy of the Lord was their strength. Actually, it really means the joy of the Lord is your army. It's a fantastic expression for the way in which God's word and all that God promises to us is the strength for God's people, our well-being, our shalom, Then the second thing is confession. And I don't have time to mention this, but you should read the whole of chapter 9 and tip uh, into 10 as well. 8, 9, and 10 belong together because it's another response to God's word. Their new understanding of who God is and what God has called them to do provoked confession. Chapter 9, verse 1, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads, they began a national day of repentance. And although chapter 9 is is introduced as a confession of sin, it really is a confession of faith. As they repeat time and time again, we failed, but the Lord showed mercy. We sinned, but God in his grace. You'll find that echoed all the way through chapter 9. I've put on the screen, it's exactly the same uh, how, how Paul writes in Romans 3, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. But now, through faith in Jesus, we are justified freely by his grace. That's the biblical uh, gospel that's expressed uh, in the law of Moses as they heard and they repented and confessed their sin. And we too know that past failures shouldn't hold us back. God, in his grace and mercy, is forgiving through Jesus. And the final thing, not just celebration and confession, but of course we have to finish with this word, commitment. Because that's the sequence in the story If you've experienced the restoring grace of God, then you want to commit your life wholeheartedly to live for him. That's the connection that is running through this story. So the prayer moves to what's called covenant renewal in chapter 9 and 10. That means they're once again affirming we are going to live for you, God. We belong to you and we're going to live the life you call us to live. So I put on the screen from chapter 10, verse 29, they were binding themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So that's the significance of this lovely story. It's hearing God's word. It's celebrating God's goodness. It's knowing God's grace in forgiveness. And it is obeying God's law. It's truth in action. That's what God calls us to do. In fact, I really like the way uh, Michael Wilcock expresses it in one of his books. He says, our understanding of God's word has to do with our obedience 
not our brains. If you really want to understand God's word, we may not be an academic, but we will understand it as we obey it. That's the way to understand the truth and the power of God's word, is to live the truth. But I have a friend uh, who has this particular illustration, and uh, let me finish with it. In fact, I've noticed how you read the Bible here in Bradford. And uh, my friend says, you need to read the Bible the Chinese way. So you've been reading it like this. The Chinese read it like this. And that's what God is looking for, isn't it? Uh, Our obedience, our affirmation, our commitment to the truth of God's word, which will then transform our lives. The word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So that's our purpose in coming to scripture. In Nehemiah 8, they now understood the word of God and so they obeyed the truth of that word. And the reason why this is a priority, it's because we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful thing that we have in our hands, the scriptures in our own language. We've got multiple copies. It's on multiple platforms. It can be, we can listen to it. We can download it. We can read it. In all kinds of ways, we have the powerful word of God. We thank you so much for this wonderful gift. And it reminds us, even this evening, to pray for those parts of the world where still they only have portions of Scripture, or maybe only the New Testament. We pray, Lord, for Wycliffe and other agencies that are trying, working very hard to bring the good news of the gospel in Scripture to every nation on earth. Thank you so much. We also pray, Lord, that we will not, as James said, not just be hearers, but doers of the word. And uh, we've really enjoyed uh, the Bradford Keswick, but it would be very disappointing if all we did was listen. And so we pray that as we've looked at the big priorities for our life and our worship and our growth, you'll help us to determine to change by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through what your word has taught us. Help us, Lord, to be different as individuals and as churches, so that we live for you day by day. We thank you so much for the good gifts of our fellowship across the churches and for all the hard work of many people in making this event happen. We thank you for these blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.